Dr. Martin Luther King speaking April 3, 1968. Within 24 hours, he would be dead, assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, April 4, 1968. Today is the federal holiday that honors him. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Nermeen Sheikh, Carla Wills, Tammy Warnoff, Libby Rainey, Sam Alcoff, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, Sharina Nadura, Tamari Astudio, Adriano Contreras, and Maria Tarasena. Mike DeFilippo and Miguel Nagara are engineers. Special thanks to Becca Staley, Julie Crosby, Miriam Barnard, Hugh Grand, David Prude, Vesta Godars, and Carl Markser. And to our camera crew, John Randolph, Karen Krogmeadows, Anna Ozbeck, and Matt Ely. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much. So much for joining us. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at KBOO.FM. Tune in to KBOO on Saturday, February 17th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. for a special live remote broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream. Keep Alive the Dream is an annual celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This year's event includes guest speakers and musical performances from the MLK All-Star Band, Eli Hardy, and more. Again, that's a special live broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream, Saturday, February 17th, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. here on your community radio station, KBOO, Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. KBOO's Board of Directors meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 6 p.m. This month's meeting will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland and online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting virtually can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. KBOO Community Radio is a proud media sponsor of the Silverton 22nd Annual MLK Observance on Monday, January 15th from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Silverton Grange. PDX community organizer and social justice activist Brian Lewis will share a presentation on Moral Revival and a Poor and Working People's Agenda for Oregon. The event will include a community potluck, poetry reading, and sing-alongs. Again, that's the Silverton 22nd Annual MLK Observance on Monday, January 15th from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Silverton Grange, 201 Division Street in Silverton. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to KBOO 90.7 FM. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, 
He must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. As somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black ugly and evil, look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high and clean. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. Davey D, Hard Knock Radio, hanging out with you this afternoon. Wanted to play a clip from Dr. Martin Luther King. It's probably a clip you hadn't heard. Um, In this one, he's talking about something that you might more associate with Malcolm X. That is the legacy that is often not celebrated when we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, He was radical in many ways, talking about everything from wealth distribution to black is beautiful, you know, uh, among other things, Um, pointing out the hypocrisies of this country, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There's one individual in the organizations that she rolls with that have been highlighting the radical side of Dr. King and implementing many of those values and the good work that they do. Uh, We welcome to the stage our comrade and fellow journalist and activist, Kat Brooks. How are you doing, Kat? I'm doing all right, David D. How you be? I'm good. I'm good. Um, This is old hat for you, but for a lot of people, they may be waking up and saying, I don't know, King got down like that. Um, When did you first become aware that there was a radical side of Dr. Martin Luther King? And it was something that I guess we would both agree in many cases with being deliberately suppressed. You know, I, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I got radicalized in college and I realized that like that paragraph about King on the one page that we got in the history books that address black people um, was a very small part of the story. Um, but honestly, I, I didn't put it in the context of, of him as a radical until 10 years ago when there was a national call, this sort of at the height of Black Lives Matter, um, to uplift the radical legacy of King. And that call came because at that time, you know, we were shutting down freeways and meetings and you know, we were everywhere and we were really being criminalized um, for it. And one of the things that white conservatives, white moderates, white liberals and black bourgeoisie folks did was use King um, to demonize us and said that King would not rock with us when, in fact, that is exactly what King was about, was interrupting business as usual in the name of black liberation. And so um, that's when I started to dig deeper um, mm-hmm. and really embrace this frame of him as a radical. He's been a a icon that people have fought over. You alluded to that. Um, People like to hold him up. I'm glad. And I think I mentioned this on the show the other day that Bernice King, his daughter, kind of shut down a lot of Zionists who were holding up King and saying he would be rocking with us in terms of what was going on in Palestine. And, uh, you know, and they found the one quote, you know, here and there. And and people went digging. You know, they went digging into the history and found the context of the quote. Uh, big shout out to Jared Ball and a number of others uh, um, that, you know, who are scholars that were able to dig that deep. Um, and then his daughter came out and said, yeah, he might have said that, but he wouldn't be rocking with genocide. End of story. Um, 
And I bring this up because, as you pointed out, uh, the disruption that you and others would do to bring attention to police terror and to stop business as usual did bring out those folks who would say, Dr. King would never do this. And I guess in just some of the research that I've done, he wasn't really asking for permits and getting grants or any of that stuff. He was like, we're going to be shutting down stuff. And that's what it's about. And I guess people conveniently forget that he was hated, you know, at the Demonized. time of his death. Demonized. Yes, he was ostracized, you know, after he did the beyond, well, that was sort of the, the mark, the big marking point of his transition, the Beyond Vietnam speech that he gave on April 4th, 1967 at Riverside Church in New York, um, where he called America the greatest purveyor of evil on the planet, um, and then started talking about, you know, the, the, the triple evils, poverty, racism, um, and imperialism, um, and aligning people across race and class, which made him very dangerous. Um, and if you think about the the politics of particularly the NAACP since their inception, it has really been about proximity to power, right? And this idea that it, if we can get close to power, if we can be in relationship with power, then we can bend power um, to a place where we can liberate our folks. And King walked that road for a while and then realized um, not so much. And then a year later, after the Beyond Vietnam speech, he said in an interview that that dream, that dream that we're all sold in terms of how we're supposed to move in the world had become a nightmare. Real talk. You know, right now, um, with the work that you do, how do you integrate King's philosophy? How do we see that manifest itself in either the work that you do uh, personally as Cat Brooks or the organization's anti-police terror project and others, how is that, you know, reflected? I would say the, the challenge to power and, um, you know, I hadn't really thought about this except for as we, you know, we do this every year and uplift his radical legacy and commit to continuing to interrupt business as usual and confronting power. Also, though, right, in our politic, right, our, our organization has a bet of politics, and we are so clear that we've got to align folks across race and class, and we do that work. Like, we're a Black-led coalition, but our membership is black, brown, indigenous, Asian, white, you know, white, white folks that are in service of black liberation. Um, and so I think those are probably the ways that I could think of the most. Our politics are really rooted in that of the Black Panther Party. But what you just said made me think about it in terms of, because we fight power, right? APTP has been in the streets, fight, like literally confronting power. I've been talking a lot, David, because we've got these young crop of organizers that don't weren't here for the almost 10 years that we were in the streets being tear gassed and flashbanged and taken to jail, you know, it was OPD and um, the sheriffs and, you know, alphabet soup. And at least us, the black folks on the front lines then, I, and I, literally this is just my aha moment, we were engaged in nonviolent um, civil disobedience. Right. So that, that definitely underscores a lot of where King is coming from. You know, yeah. in spite of, which is kind of courageous when you think about it, you know, but he also had to learn um, when he went into the big cities. I think that was an aha moment, you know, especially when he went to Chicago and realized the scale and scope of racism, how yeah. violent it could be, and that um, it was so embedded. You know, it's one thing to be in the South, it was another thing to be up North and deal with that. Um, I ask, you know, that question because as I'm thinking in 2024, you know, the opposition to the type of demands that people like yourselves and others um, have made, they have adjusted, you know, they, you know, the, the enemy has adjusted. If you're going to shut down freeways, they've adjusted to that, you know, um, if you're going to... Uh, March on the streets, they've adjusted to that. If you have certain rhetoric, you've seen that rhetoric get hijacked and, and flipped around, so they adjusted to that. How do you how do you fight the power now? You know, and is it and is it a departure from from King in doing that? You know, meaning that you have to take some parts of it, but now you have to have a whole other different strategy in 2024. I'm sure he would have adjusted too. Yeah, I had the brilliance of of Malkia Devitt Searle on um, my show yesterday, and one of the things that I appreciated that they talked about 
was that it actually it's never just one tactic, right? It's always yeah. a multitude of tactics, and a good organizer is going to analyze the landscape, right? F do your your power mapping and figure out where the leverage is, and also where what the people are going to respond to, because it's not about us, right? That are calling these these meetings or marches or whatever. It's about the masses. What are the masses ready to do? How are they ready to get down, and then developing the tactic from there? And so, uh, you're right. Are they studied us? Um, and I'm talking particularly here in Oakland, they watched us. Um, they watched us shut down city council. They watched us get, you know, mobilized hundreds of people to call in. They watched us hold press conferences. They watched us engage media and communications as a strategy. And they have done the exact same thing. And they have been gaining ground um, in what is supposed to be a progressive bastion for the world by utilizing our tactics. And so, um, we we've got to flip the script and those conversations are definitely happening. And I think, I think going into 2024, one of the biggest things that has to happen is that the left has got to unite. The right has united across ideology, across race, across class, across issues, right? They don't, they don't care if they disagree um, about your beliefs of the school board versus how you deal with the homeless, right? They have a vision for what they want Oakland and the country to look like, and they have consolidated to push that forward. And if we do not do the same, um, quick, fast, and in a hurry. Um, I think that we we are in real trouble. And you've heard me say this before, Davey, uh, Oakland falls, the country falls. You know, as you were talking, Kat, I, I was thinking about what you said, you know, with, uh, with the right has united. But one of the things that the right has done, there is a radical side. I'm going to use that word just to, or an extreme side. I'll use that word, right? Um, the Trumpsters. And what they did was they looked in, they removed the moderates, you know, from their midst, you know, like they challenged them, they got them out, they made it very uncomfortable and basically said, you're not wanted. And it seems like on the left, and you tell me if, if you disagree, you have one side that is really standing on uh, particular ideologies and, uh, and, and, and maybe understands that we need to have change versus reform if 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 i can sum it up that way and the reform folks may be the more moderates to the left you know you hear people saying well i'm i'm more sensible i'm the quote unquote adult in the room that type of rhetoric comes out um and it really is just maybe changing places with the folks in power and maybe you know instead of frowning you'll do it with a smile but nothing really changes you know you're, you're still against the very things that you all are fighting for so do you feel that that type of leftness needs to be united with with folks like yourselves and others or is there really division among people who profess to have radical you know views i definitely think there's division and i think um mm -hmm. i think we throw around words like left or progressive too loosely right so former oakland mayor libby schaff put herself as a progressive, right? And that's how people talked about her and that she was on the left. And that woman under, you know, built 4% of affordable housing, ran black people up out of Oakland, uh, spent her first 24 hours when she was elected with the Oakland Police Department, who at that time was the most murderous police department in Northern California, um, was in bed with developers and billionaires, right? Was carrying on Jerry Brown's legacy, slumification versus gentrification. Um, and, and I think that people, particularly in places like Oakland, want to present themselves as left-leaning um, because I, I still believe that we have a majority progressive voting base, um, but really what they're interested in is power and they are centrist. And I think we just need to call it what it is. I'm talking about unification about folks that are to the left of that. And and like the far left, right? The far, far left um, uh, to, to, to just, you know, left of center. <laughs> right. Um, uh, we have got to unite. Those of us who know that policing, we're not going to incarcerate our way out of poverty. Those of us who believe that housing is a human right. Those of us who believe that the Oakland Police Department shouldn't get over half of general funds. Those of us who believe that all kids deserve a quality education and understand that tinkering around the edges of the system is not how we're going to get there, but we got to tear it down and build something else. Those are the folks that have to unite. We were united before. Um, and, and then, you know, the, I, I think the trauma and the intensity and the pace of the work, right? You get buried into your hole. And because we weren't facing, I don't think people felt like we were facing a uh, massive threat, um, right. that we, we got disjointed. 
But we are, we are again facing a massive threat and we've got to unite and fight or we're going to lose. How, how realistic do you feel that people will come together and what would be the biggest obstacle preventing that? I mean, the conversations are already happening. Um, one of the things that is dangerous and, you know, the, the, not all the critiques about, um, organizations being C3s are, are wrong because it does shift things a bit, right? You've got staff to pay, right? you've got uh, a building you've got to keep up. Um, and the dollars that come to the left for us to do our work are so scarce that we end up fighting, right, for scraps. And right. that creates division. Or, um, for instance, with black bodies were trending. People who had never done police work before ever in their lives all of a sudden were presenting themselves as an organization interested in transforming public safety, right? And that kind of stuff causes conflict. And it's sad and it's silly, um, but it but it makes it, it hard. And then also in Oakland in particular, right, um, there's such radical politics and people that are deeply studied and really believe that they know the way that is right. And I'm talking all the way from the the, the anarchists, right? Who right. who are here and have an ideology or in the streets, you know, to, to folks like me and everybody in between. And those ideological fights, and that's what I was trying to convey earlier. The right is not having those ideological fights. The 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 folks that believe that we should um, enact the constitution exactly why it's written versus the folks that are like, no, there's bigger, they're not fighting over that. They're clear that they've got to consolidate power and move. We're fighting about, is it nonviolent tactic? Um, do we shut down freeways? Should you take dollars for the work? Shut up and come together and, and, and fight. And then, and then once we reach our goal, right, then we can have those conversations. Right. Would you say that the right is able to unite because everybody has enough pie to eat? I think that's a piece of it for sure. Yeah, that's what it seems like. You know, the evangelicals is like, we got churches, we got land, we got we got stuff that we need. So we make a choice to come together with you, but we're not starving. You know, we don't do that. We don't come together because we, you know, we, we need something. We're doing it because we can. And it seems like, you know, then your billionaire class, well, they obviously have enough to eat so they can, you know, we can get, we can rock together. We don't have to rock together. And I see a lot of that. But if everybody is in survival mode, it's really hard to come together because at the end of the day, you're kind of looking like if you shut down the freeway, cat, that's going to mess up my ability to go to work and I really need that job. Whereas the evangelical, just to kind of make the point, is like, we don't need the freeway to go to work. We have our own business. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. I think that's a piece of it. I also think, Davey, the, um, the commitment to maintain and uphold white supremacy. I think that is a driving force that allows the MAGAs to connect with the white supremacists, to connect with the Republicans, to right? Like they are so clear. Um, about their vision for how the world should be, and they've been able to hold on to it for so long. Um, whenever that is threatened, we see repeatedly, they're like, oh no, <laughs> right? Like um, we have to unite and we have to put these people back in their place. You, you mentioned upholding white supremacy. Is there a difference between upholding white supremacy, which could be a, you know, um, an ambiguous type of term versus like the blacks are coming and we're going to bash on them. The blacks are coming. I don't like black people, anti-blackness, anti-immigrant, you know, that sort of thing. We can call it white supremacy, but I think hatred towards others seems to be a very driving force, or at least that's something that is often put in the water, you know, for a lot of people to rally behind. And, and, and that's where, you know, to your point, if people are gaining ground in anything, I think it's because they've been able to create the ultimate boogeyman, which is black people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and yeah, I, I conflate the two, uh, but I guess after, in response to what you just said, I would say hatred is a tenant of white supremacy that unites those folks, yeah. right? From the folks that will say it to your face and out loud, to the folks that are writing legislation to make sure black people in this country will never get anywhere, right? And, I, and so with that in mind, 
the hatred of Trump or fascism, the hatred of MAGA, that might have worked in 2020, but does it work in 2024? Because that seemed to be a rallying cry. Because I think when you tell people, especially if they're younger and don't have a frame of reference to understand what it means when you have tot uh, you know, authoritarianism completely up and down the board. Like if you're living in a Texas or a Mississippi where you're, you know, your 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 movements have severely been repressed. I don't think people have a concept of that. So there's like, yeah, we'll be able to make it through. And that may be very different than folks who are like, yo, I I'm I'm in California because I had to escape that once upon a time. So is it realistic that, to expect people to rally around fear of fascism, hatred of Trump, or is there something else that we have to put in there? Love of people, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I, the conditions have changed, right? Yeah. And and one of the biggest conditions that have changed is um, the right has successfully co-opted the media and introduced not just the boogeyman of black people, but the boogeyman of safety, right? And yeah. ha has and I'm not saying that things on Oakland streets aren't, you know, highly problematic. And um, right now we're being sold, sell us your soul, relinquish your rights, um, do not trust anybody in your community, and we'll keep you safe, that promise of safety. And the masses are scared and the masses have bought into it because, you know, you say something over and over again and you see it all over the mainstream media. And so trying to figure out it's not enough anymore to just say, you know, police don't keep you safe. Right. We have to figure out what safety actually looks like and be a part of the mechanism that delivers it to the people. Because otherwise, I think we're looking at another decade like we had, you know, from 85 to 95, where people just gave up everything for the allure, for the promise of safety. Andrea Ritchie of Interrupting Criminalization said at a conference not too long ago, she said, the reality is, though, you ain't never going to feel safe. We are a bunch of humans spitting on a rock through space what is safety you right. know what i mean but yeah we're up against a very different dynamic right now and and i don't know that any of us have wholly figured out um how to address it i know for us at aptp the spirit of service to continuing to build alternatives to address the material needs of our people and the, and the healing of our trauma and that's what we're quadrupling down on and that's what we hope to replicate and spread when we talk about Dr. King, Cat Brooks, you know, you often hear the word love and, you know, the prince of love, you know, that was a central tenet of his operation. But um, and he, you know, I remember he gave a speech where he talks about the different types of love, agape love, eros love, all that. Right. I know that you have a love for our people, our community, your organization operates on that principle. But is that is that love? genuinely have felt across the board on our side of town one and is it the manifestation of that love something that people can really rally behind we use words like can we reimagine you know can we uh well reimagine would be a key word but it's rooted in love and i don't know if that's too hokey in 2024 in the face of fascism is that a concept that people can really get to or is that something that we're going to have to you know, maybe eventually arrive and we're going to have to have something that we can rally around immediately, more immediately versus the notion of love. I think that people are I'm talking about our people in particular. Um, f no, except talking about all oppressed folks feel unseen, right? Mm -hmm. They feel unheard. They feel uncared for. They feel discarded, disrespected. And then you see the reaction to that manifested in you know trauma violence mental health issues and i do believe the antidote is love when you're on the at, at, through service love through service so mm -hmm. when you see community ready core out there giving like whole like bags of groceries to someone that was getting ready to walk into gazali's with ten dollars and figure out how to make a meal like you see them be seen, right? Or when we're working with with our families, our impacted families, and they're like, yo, I can't pay my light bill. And we're able to meet that material need. Or I'll just be out in community and legit, sometimes that's what keeps me going because there's so much hate and nastiness on the other side. And people will stop me 
and thank me for APTP. And you can see that. And so I do think that that's it. It's, it's love manifested through service and ensuring our people are seen and heard. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to pull them in. But then once we pull them in, we have to continue to care for them, right? Right. And, and develop their skill set to care for others. Um, and I think it is going to be that each one reach one moment for for a hot minute. I, I like the concept, and I think you, you're spot on when you talk about being seen. Because one thing I've noticed is that on the other side, uh, you know, those who want complete authoritarianism, they have enacted that I see you type of concept. They have gone to folks who've been discarded and said, I see you. Maybe they don't see you, but I see you. And, yeah. you know, it might be something simple as folks who go, ah, we don't like football, right? You know, somebody might get righteous and say that. And the other side is like, I like football and I see you, right? It might be, you know, right. somebody who is um, um, doesn't have the right language, you know, because we all have these radical, you know, we all have these terms. You don't right. need terms with me. I see you. And so I guess I, I bring that up to ask, like, what can people on the left, people that are listening right now, what what steps do they take to make sure that folks in their community are being seen if that is something that is lacking? I mean, I think, like, on the most basic level, looking people in the eye and saying hello. Like, people are shocked. I do that, I do that all day long. Yeah. And people are shocked. They're like, oh, hi. You know, build, building those connections. Our unhoused folks... Stop stepping over them and pretending like they're not there, right? Those are those are those are human beings. Yeah, but I can't um, look at them when they have a tent set up across the street, or it's, you know, it's or they somebody ridiculous. bit my car. You know that type. There's an anger that's there that prevents me from wanting to say hello to the lady that just screamed across the street all night. I want to okay, say hello. So I know you don't, but that's how we heal. Yeah. That is how we heal. Knowing our community, knowing our neighbors, human contact. Um, and then I always say, like, if you're not part of an organization, a service organization, it could be an organization that picks up trash. You need to join one. Like, what part of your life can you commit? And and do that right now. We say often at this time you're at APTP, we are recommitting ourselves, right, right um, to, to our tenants and our principles of building the world that King fought and died for. And this is an opportunity for all of us to do that and figure out what percentage of your life can you give to make your community just that much more better? Because that's what's gonna take. Because otherwise, there's an agenda moving that doesn't care about you, your community, your safety, your housing, your anything. And once they get into power, the weight of that boot, uh, I can't even think about how heavy that's gonna be. Well, one thing we, we should have learned and we can see that playing out now, is that once in power, they're going for keeps. And I, I think one of the, the privileges we have for being on air is that we get to talk to people from all around the country. And I like to remind people, like, look at Florida and Texas as two examples of what happens when people, in, in Mississippi, when people have the power. So in Florida, you know, what 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 made the headlines is the anti-woke bills, right? So people have been like, what do you mean they're getting rid of black studies and all that? But what we're ignoring is they got a police force that just goes around to the polls and, you know, arrest people just, you know, if they think that you shouldn't be voting, that they are getting ready to pass a bill that says the police cannot be monitored Right. Other right. states have passed bills that say you can't take money from the police budget. Right. Um, they've already started enacting a bill in Texas, you know, it's supposed to come in March. But there are certain parts of the state will we'll be doing a show on that next week where they're already starting to arrest people on suspicion of being here undocumented. It ain't just limited to brown folks. Right. No. So these types of things are happening right now. And I bring that up to say that. This is a mechanism of saying we're going to shut every single thing down. We could take away their colleges, take away their safety nets in every which way and make this really unbearable so that you can't escape this hold for 50 years to a century. 
But go right. ahead. Well, no, I just want to say, so I too have talked to people in Florida and Texas, black folks, black organizers. The data that that is not being front and center is the uptick in mysterious deaths of yeah. black people, hangings, you know, beaten on the side of the road, disappeared across the board. There are billboards in places in Florida targeting um, um, black people. So it, you're right, the legislation, that climate then makes way for a whole other level um, of, of violence and assault on our community. We're talking, so I guess we have to really not only be vigilant, but also have a plan of action once we get in to make right. permanent some of the things that we have been reimagining, yes. <laughs> you know, to, yes. so, so that they are here for the generations to come and not, we're not reinventing the wheel. As, as we close out, uh, every year this time, uh, you guys have had uh, a series of actions that you're taking, you know, some of it more clandestine, you know, you know, you know, and then you wake up and things are happening. Some things have been a little bit more visible. Um, what are you able to share? And I know that you have the annual march, you know, yeah. reclaim King March, but you know, anything that you can let us know to, to look out for over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um Saturday, tomorrow, the week of action kicks off with the Arab Resource Organizing Center's port shutdown. Um, it's not about one ship. It's about shutting down U.S. commerce, right? Um, so the interrupting business as usual, as we talked about. Folks will start to get there at 5 a.m. Um, I believe there's a couple of shifts. Um, you can get more information on AROC's website. And then Monday is our 10th annual march. We're getting together to Oscar Grant Plaza at 11 a.m. We have speakers that include Frederica Newton, the widow of Minister Huey P. Newton, Linda Sarasor of Empower, Malkia Devitt Cyril. There'll be um, a children's engagement space and a healing justice space. Um, so we'll have a program and then we'll march. Um, we have launched in response what, to the what time? What time? What time will that be on Monday? Uh, Monday, 11 a.m. Oscar Grant Plaza, 14th and Broadway, 11 a.m. Um, APTP launched a safe, uh, safe lives, safe roads, save lives bill, uh, campaign in response to the murder of Tyree Nichols to civilianize traffic stops. Um, so there's a panel about that on Tuesday at 11 a.m. We're going to have a, a panel on defund. Defund is not dead, right? We are still talking about taking money away from law enforcement and investing in things that actually keep us safe. There's film screenings. There's a cop watch training. There's uh, intro to mental health first training. There's um, for the white folks that are listening, Surge is having a how to be a better ally training. You get all the information at antipoliceterrorproject.org and just click on calendar. There you have it. Again, what's the website they can click on? antipoliceterrorproject.org Cat Brooks, we appreciate you. Um, you come on every morning at 8 o'clock on <laughs> KPFA if folks are in the area or if they're listening above and beyond kpfa.org. We can hear you in uh, the analysis that you and your team bring. So Law and Disorder, right? Yes. Law and Disorder 8 a.m. Monday through Thursdays. All righty. Well, look, we will let you go. Um there's going to be a week of uh, uh, disruptions. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we, the intention is to rock Oakland okay. and let them know that we are still here. This is a progressive bastion of radical politics, and we are uniting over this okay. weekend. We are recommitting ourselves to the movement, and we are letting them know Oakland belongs to us. You can't have her. There you go. I'll wait until after the week to uh, beat you in some dominoes. That will be the crowning jewel of the disruption Y'all, you I know, Davey Davy, can't play bones for nothing. Me and Dr. Melina Abdullah <laughs> whomped him and whomped him and whomped him again, but he going to keep talking. That's what's up. Yeah, after the week, let's get together and do it. There you go. We're going to take a break on Hard Knock Radio. We'll be right back. Hard Knock Radio. We're rocking with Picasso. What? And Maya, Who? my last name is Susanna. Yeah,
It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital, they allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. Said simply, dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight... I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960. And students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream, taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961. We decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. 
And some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. Or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. Thank you very kindly, my friends. As I listen to Ralph Abernathy and his eloquent and generous introduction, and uh, then thought about myself, I wondered who he was talking about. <laughs> it's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. 
I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm one. You reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through or rather across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discuss the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacked his 95 theses on the door at the church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. 
But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do. Survival demands that we grapple with. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace. But now, no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and non-violence in this world. It's non-violence or non-existence. That is where we are today. Let us try. Hey, hey, hey. Ho, 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 knock radio. East, west, north, south, conectados. Every set, every hood, barrio to barrio. Y'all stand up, stay righteous. Speaking to the thugs, one love. We know where y'all at. Brown Buffalo. It's a hard knock life, gotta pay your bills. They want a song about bling, but it ain't real. Uh, we speak to the kids and the OGs. Organize, mobilize, be the change you wanna see. 415s bumping hard knock radio. Brown Buffalo, all up in your stereo. And to the youth, live life like it's golden. Go dumb, go hard, but don't forget where you're going. We from the hood, so it's all to the good. Let us know this, what you're feeling is right. Let's get this understood. It's only one reason why we here today. We trying to make real music so the people can relate. Learning from this hard knock, slipping in these hard knocks, listening to hard knocks, questioning the hard knocks. Learning through these hard knocks, living for this hip hop, listening to hard knocks, ripping to the hard stop. Learning from the hard knocks, living in these hard knocks, listening to hard knocks, questioning the hard knocks. Learning through these hard knocks, living for this hip hop, listening to hard knocks, ripping to the hard
listening to KBOO Portland. Hey, KBOO listeners. KBOO cut through the clouds during our end-of-year campaign thanks to support from listeners like you. When we meet our campaign goals, we can continue to bring you colorful, radiant rays of radio. Thank you, and keep tuning in for unique music, cutting-edge news, and transformative public affairs on the airwaves. Saddle up and ride with country music in your head from 6 till 9 every Saturday morning on KBU Swingin' Country. You can count on Swingin' Country's stable of rotating hosts to fill your early morning with country, alternative country, western, western swing, 